So last week, we began this series that we're calling Called to More. And the big idea from last week was really just challenging you to think about your work differently. And we spent some time talking about, and it's a good reminder to hear now, that when we say your work, don't get narrowed in on just the nine to five job. When we say your work, maybe that you're a student at school. Maybe it's your role on the team after school. Uh, maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe if you're a stay-at-home mom, it's your role at the home. And yes, obviously it does include your nine to five job. But when we talk about your work, we're talking about all of it. And where we ended up last week was a phenomenal idea. It's this, it's that your work is not just a place you've ended up. It's a place you've been placed. And man, can I tell you, that idea has resonated with people. We've heard from so many of you saying, man, that just hit me. That was good. We saw that post get shared a lot on social media, even making its way into people that are not even remotely associated to our church. They jumped on that idea that your work is not just this place that you've ended up on accident, but you are placed where you are on purpose. And I really do think that when we get that, when we see that, it's such a life-changing truth. But maybe hearing that last week didn't pump you up. Maybe for you hearing that last week, it was a little discouraging even, especially if you hate the job that you're at now. So don't think, take away from that statement that a Christian can never change jobs. That's not the idea. Like you're, you're gonna change jobs. I have changed jobs. That, that's not what we're saying. But what we're saying is that we want you to remember that the place you've been placed includes every place that you've been placed. That is your home. That is the ball field. That is dinner with your friends. That's all of it. So when we say that it's a place you've been placed, where you work is a place you've been placed, we're talking about all of it. And the reason that we're challenging you to think this way, the reason we want you to begin to shift that mindset, in fact, the whole point of this series is that we believe you are called to more. You're called to so much more than you realize. You're not just called to collect a paycheck and make a living. And likewise, you're not called to create the whole meaning, purpose, fulfillment, and identity of your life simply from your work. But when we say that you're called to more, what we believe is that through our work, whatever that work is, through our work, God is calling us to something far greater than we could ever imagine. Something far more meaningful than we could ever dream. And that is that through our work, God is calling us to join him in his work of redeeming and reconciling this sin-broken world to himself. That is a wild idea. If that doesn't strike you as a wild idea, maybe you've been in church or watching church too long. But the idea is that the God of the universe, the one who created all of this world, has invited you, he's invited me to join him in his work in this world. How crazy is that? That God would invite us to participate with him. And so when we get this, and as we adopt that mindset, and I hope you are, I think the next question that we have to ask is, well, what does this look like? If, if God's calling me through my work to join him in his work, what does that look like? How, how is God calling me to join him in his work in our world? And I think that that depends, at least in part, on how you see this world and your relationship in it. 
So let's kind of unpack that today because when you hear God is calling you through your work to join him in his work of redeeming and reconciling this world, I think the way that you think about the world, your role in the world, your relationship with the world really weighs in on that. So this morning, I want to spend some time and kind of drill down in that. And maybe you're thinking at first glance, well, that question, how do you see your role or relationship in the world? Maybe that seems pretty straightforward, especially if you've been in church or a Christian for a long time. And honestly, I guess that's pretty fair. Like we know that as followers of Jesus, that we are to be different and live different than the world that we're in. But I think if we really get serious about asking that question, even that begs a question, what does it look like? What does it look like for us to be different than the world? What does it look like for us to live different than the world? So here's the thing. When it comes to how we see our relationship with this world, there's really two predominant postures that Christians have historically taken around this idea. And we get both of these uh, based on the times in the Old Testament where we read of the nation of Israel finding themselves as captives in a foreign land. And those two big times are, and if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll recognize these. If not, uh, man, it's great to go back and look and study those. Uh, But the first of the two ways that Christians have historically seen themselves in relation to the world through the lens of Israel in the Old Testament is when the nation of Israel were slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And then the second is when that same nation, the nation of Israel, was taken away years later into captivity in Babylon. And so I think whichever of the way you see those most closely identifying to yourself as a slave in Egypt or an exile in Babylon, I think that that goes a long way into relating how you see yourself and your relationship in the world today, how you live in the world and how you work in the world. So so what do I mean by that? Well, I think if we most closely identify ourselves and our relationship with the world today with Israel while they were in Egypt, well, like Moses, our main goal is just going to be to get out. If we see ourselves as slaves in Egypt like Moses and the nation of Israel, then we're just going to be trying to get out as quickly as we can. And I get that. I think we've all seen and felt this idea, this tension before, because we know this world is not our home. When we look at the news, when we uh, scroll through social media, watch TV, go to the movies, whatever, we see the brokenness and wickedness of the world that we live in as Christians. Sometimes we just want to get away from it. We want to run away. We want to, we want to get out of here as quickly as possible. And historically, what this has done is Christians who see the world this way, it has led these groups of Christians to withdraw and isolate from their cultural context and isolate really from anything in life that they would deem as secular. They may have a job, but it's often done almost exclusively in Christian circles, right? Like they have a job, but they have Christian clients. They work with Christian companies. Everything they do is Christian. And so they try to isolate from all the other secular stuff. Or maybe they have a secular job, but they see it as, man, I'm just going to collect a paycheck, do a good job, and hurry back home as quickly as possible. I think for people who who see themselves as Israel as slaves in Egypt, and that's how they relate to themselves as a follower of Jesus in the world, for them, work is really just almost a necessary evil. It's just something they have to do. They would see it not as we talked about last week, a good gift from a good father. They would see work really as a result of the fall. It's just something that we have to go through. 
And to be clear, maybe you're saying, well, Chip, I, I resonate with that. Are you telling me that's wrong? Well, I'm not saying it's entirely wrong. Like, I do think there's something there. I think as Christians, yes, we are to separate ourselves from the sinfulness of the world. We are to be different than the world. But I think there's a better option than just completely withdrawing, isolating, and trying to get out of the world as quickly as possible. And I think that we can feel this and see this when we begin to see ourselves not as slaves in Egypt, but as exiles in Babylon. If we can see ourselves like the nation of Israel when they were exiles in Babylon, we don't have to focus just on getting out. We know one day we will, but that's not our focus. What we can do now is embrace a different approach to our lives and to our work. And I think we see this best. We see this very clearly through Jeremiah's prophecy. So if you got your Bibles, go ahead and go with me uh, to Jeremiah chapter 29. This letter, this prophecy from Jeremiah was written to the nation of Israel as they found themselves captive in Babylon. And it was a letter uh, of judgment. It was a message of judgment. Hey, this is why you're taken away. God is judging the sins of the nation. That's why you were taken away to Babylon in in captivity. But it's also a message of hope because as you get to the latter half of the book, especially the chapter that we're going to read today, there is hope found inside uh, of this judgment. And when I told you to turn to Jeremiah 29, maybe you already put your finger on Jeremiah 29, 11, because that's probably the most famous verse in all of Jeremiah, maybe even the Old Testament, maybe second in the Bible only to John 3, 16, because when you hear Jeremiah, you think Jeremiah 29, 11, and we know how that verse goes, right? I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, uh, plans for a future and a hope. You know that, you hear that. If you've ever been to a graduation service, you've heard somebody preach on that, and it's good. It's true. It's it's powerful, but I don't think we read Jeremiah 29, 10. And Jeremiah 29, 10 says, yeah, 11, I got plans for you. you got a future and a hope. But Jeremiah 29, 10 says, those plans ain't coming right now. Uh, verse 10 says, hey, you're going to be here as an exile, captive in Babylon for 70 years. It's almost, hey, good news, you're going home. Bad news, you're not going home anytime soon. You're stuck here for generations. Does that sound familiar? I think it should, because I think this is, this is us. This is where we really see ourselves as followers of Jesus in the church today, connecting with those exiles and Babylons. See, we know this world is not our home. We know we have a, a certain future hope, but that hope isn't here yet. We're still here, and we're going to be here for a while. So what I want to do there in Jeremiah 29 is really just kind of back up a few verses, maybe verses you haven't ever read before, and look at how the Lord through Jeremiah tells these exiles how they should live, how they should work in light of the future hope they have, but the current reality they're experiencing. All right? So if you got your Bibles, let's read together Jeremiah 29, just a few verses, verse 4 through 7. So let's read that. It says this, This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourselves and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city I've deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. So, man, this is big. 
Maybe for those who have been taken captive into Babylon, this is wholly unexpected. Matter of fact, I love the way that David Platt uh, says, he he wrote a devotional uh, on this, and this is what he says about Jeremiah 29, uh, verses 4 through through 7. He, He said this, What a command from God to his people as they were living in exile. So picture the scene. You have God's people taken over by the Babylonians who destroy Jerusalem and the temple and take the people and they're scattered from their land, from their family, from their friends in a foreign land. And God is instructing them during that time to seek the welfare of the city around them. The city they've been sent into exile, but to seek the welfare of that city, to seek the good of that city. God commanded his people to seek the welfare of the city, even when they were in exile. Now, obviously, he says, that's a command from God in a very specific situation in the Old Testament. But I think the application certainly relates to us wherever we live, even as I'm studying and preaching through 1 Peter right now. That should be familiar, Orchard. And being reminded continually that I am, we are sojourners, exiles in this world. No matter what country we live in, we ultimately belong to another country, a heavenly country. We're not living for this country ultimately, wherever we may live, including the United States. And yet God calls us to pray for the good of the country we live in, to pray for the leaders around us, to pray for the welfare of the city around us. This is part of what it means to be the people of God, to intercede on behalf of the people around us, of the city around us, of the country around us. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Again, that was from David Platt. And man, I love that. I think, I think he hits the nail on the head when he talks about what it must have felt like to, to hear to those people who've seen their cities and homes destroyed, to be taken from their homes and, and said, hey, now I want you to pursue the good of this city. Man, that, that's a striking thing. And I love that because David says, yes, you are. To, you're to pray for it. You're to pray for the good, to pray for the welfare, to, to go for it. And I love what he says specifically when he says, this is part of what it means to be the people of God. This idea of pursuing the good of the city is part of what it means to be the people of God. But see, I'm not sure that David goes quite far enough. I, I, I 100% agree with him. We are to pray for the good and welfare of the city. But I think it's not just that we pray for the good of the city, but we are called to work for it too. Not just pray, but actually through our work, in our jobs, at our homes, in our hobbies, at our schools, we are to work for the good of the city. So what does that mean? What, what, what are we trying to get at here? Um, I think inside that passage in Jeremiah 29, uh, there's a few things that we should take and learn from that passage. So let me walk you through them really quick. Uh, number one, I think the thing we take from it is that we are exiles with a better home and a future hope. We spent a good bit of time talking about this uh, a few months ago in our series through 1 Peter chapter 1. We really The subtitle of the series was Living as Exiles. And the point being is that in 1 Peter, Scripture specifically tells us that we are still exiles in this world, a metaphorical Babylon. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. says it super plainly. 
He says, Peter, an apostle of Christ Jesus, to those chosen living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he says, hey, you are chosen foreknown by God to live as exiles. That's them that Peter was writing to. That's them, Israel, in the Old Testament Babylon. That's us today. We are still exiles. And I would even go further to say that we should see ourselves as exiles in Babylon, not slaves in Egypt, because the New Testament also reminds us, yes, we're still exiles, but it also reminds us that we're no longer slaves. Take your Bibles. We don't have time today because it's a whole message in itself. But go to Hebrews chapter 3 and start reading in verse 14. The author of Hebrews basically says, we are no longer slaves to sin, slaves to Egypt, but we, because of Jesus, have entered into the promised land, the promised rest. So I think, yes, we are exiles. No, we are not slaves. The world as exiles is not our ultimate home, so it doesn't deserve our ultimate allegiance. But also, this world is not our ultimate home, but it is our home for now. Right, So that, that creates the tension. We are exiles with a, few, with a better home, a, a future hope. But second thing is, we're also members of the community that we live in right now. Yes, our, our first citizenship is in heaven, but we are still citizens of our earthly homes. Um, and I know that right now, I think in, in the American church, there's a, a battle for, for what that means. What does it mean to be a Christian and a citizen and trying to find the right balance there? But I think what it doesn't mean is that we should shy away from our earthly citizenship. Matter of fact, look at Paul in Acts. Uh, Paul very specifically and readily acknowledges his Roman citizenship. Right, so, so Paul, the apostle, author of two-thirds of our New Testament, he says, look, I'm a citizen of Rome. But I think the difficulty comes in really keeping that tension between our home in heaven and our home here because keeping that tension really can be a fine line for us to walk, can it? We're not to isolate from our culture, but we're not to fully integrate into it either. We don't isolate even by making a Christian subculture, our own little bubbles to live in. But we don't integrate and there be nothing distinct about us as Christians. So that's a tension, right? Don't isolate, but don't integrate. I've always heard it said, and maybe you've heard it said like this too, that as Christians, we're called to be in the world, but not of the world. In the world, but not of it. What, what the heck does that mean? I thought about that too, right? So the best way that, that I can explain this and understand this personally is it's kind of like a fish in the Gulf. You got on the flats, you're fishing, you catch a trout. That trout has been living in salt water its entire life. But when you take it back to the dock, you clean it, it's a pure white meat that is not salty. So this fish was in the sea, but the sea didn't get in him. It was in the sea, but it was not of the sea. So maybe, yeah, take away, don't be salty. <laughs> no. Uh, so, so what does this mean? How do, what does it mean that we are exiles with a, a future hope, with a better future home, but we're also citizens of this world now? What, what does that mean? What do those two truths mean for our work? Here's what I think it means. That we are to work for the good of our community in light of our future hope. 
See, here's what I think is really, really interesting when you look at Jeremiah's prophecy, a word of the Lord through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel in Babylon. Jeremiah doesn't tell the exiles to live and to work for the good of the city because they have no hope, right? He says, hey, man, you're exiles. You're gonna be here. You might as well get a job. You might as well build a house. You might as well marry off your kids. No, he doesn't say that they are to work for the good of that city because they have no hope, but he says that they are to work for the good of the city precisely because they have hope. And I think that this is kind of the alleviation of that tension. Yes, we have a home. Yes, we have a future hope. Yes, we're citizens of this world. But instead of saying, since I have a future hope, I'm gonna do nothing here and wait till that day comes, uh, we do something different. We don't wait on that. But it also doesn't mean since we don't have a hope, we just completely commit here and think of nothing else. There's that middle road again between the two. See, we don't work because we don't have hope. We work because we do have hope. We have a hope that makes us distinct as followers of Jesus. We have a hope that this world desperately needs. That's why we work. We should see ourselves as exiles placed where we are placed by a sovereign God for our good and for his glory because we are. We are exiles, yes, but we are not just exiles. We are ambassadors filling this earth with his name and his fame. God is inviting us to join him in his work here on earth. That's why we're still here. And man, we could take an entire series just fleshing out the implications of that. We could spend the calendar here probably doing that. And honestly, next week, we're going to devote a good chunk of time to it uh, as we wind down the series. And, and honestly, if you want to go back on demand on the website and watch First Peter, you can probably pick up a lot of this. But for today, uh, as we wind down, I want to bring our focus to one thing. One thing, and that's this. Working for the good of our communities, just like we are called to as exiles in a foreign land, working for the good of our communities means working for the good of others. Let me say that one more time. I don't want you to miss it. Working for the good of our communities means working for the good of others. Maybe you're watching this and you're saying, Chip, why'd you say that twice? I got it. It's not complicated. No, I get it. It's simple, but it's super important that we get that. See, if you watched last week, and if you didn't, you need to go back because this is really built off of that. But last week we mentioned that one of the ways that our work is broken by sin is that our work has become selfish. It's become selfish. It's about our identity, our purpose, our fulfillment, making a name for ourselves. So we can begin redeeming our work and in so doing, join God in his work of redemption by working for others instead of ourselves. That's a, a, a radically unique idea because in a world that says your job is all about climbing that ladder, your job is all about making as much money as you can. Your job is all about making a name for yourself, showing your talent, showing how good a player you are, a hunter you are, a, a mom you are. It's about making a name for ourselves. What we're called to is work for others and not ourselves. And this starts by putting their good above our own. I mean, when is the last time through your work, whatever that work may be, that you intentionally chose to work for someone else's good and had your own good take a back seat. 
I mean, this, this is genuinely seeking to serve others, not just make a sale, not just maximize profit, not just look good on social media, but truly doing something for others, for them, being open-handed, generous, kind, humble. Because if we're going to work for the good of our cities, we've got to work for the good of others. And here's the thing. This, being for others, working for others, is exactly the model and the command of Jesus. This is what Jesus did, and this is exactly what Jesus told us to do. Real quick, you can write them down, look them up later. I'll read them quickly. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. This is what Paul writes, showing Jesus' model. It says, If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation in love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. Why? Because we're to adopt the same attitude as that as Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here, Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, we are to be for others. Why? Because that's exactly how Jesus lived his life. Being for others, working for others is the model of Jesus, but it's also his command to us. Not just Paul's command to us, which inspired by the Holy Spirit is equally authoritative. But if you need to hear it from Jesus's own mouth, look at what he says in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. It says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test Jesus. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And Jesus said to him, love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. So when asked, hey, Jesus, what's the most important command? Love God and love people. Working for others and their good is what Jesus did and what he told us to do. We've said it again. We've we'll, we said it before. We'll say it again. We are called to be for others. That is a distinctive mark of the follower of Jesus. If we know that through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, that Jesus has once and for all fully and finally been for us, then we, as his followers, are free to be for others. And in fact, when you think about your work, whether that's your job, your hobby, your school, or your role at home, being for others is not a part of your work. Being for others is your work. So if we want to join God in his work of redeeming and reconciling this sin-broken world to himself, if we believe that our work is not just a place we've ended up, but a place we've been placed, 
then we have to begin working for the good of the city, working for the good of our communities, working for the good of others. What would that look like in your life this week? If you took all of your needs, all of your wants, all of your desires, all of your goals, all of your self-image and put it in the back seat, what if you followed the command of Jesus and the example of Jesus and chose this week, wherever you are, to work for others? I believe that you'd start to see God do some pretty amazing things. So let's not just make this a nice saying, be for others. Let's make this a part of our calling and let's make this a focus of our work. Let's work for the good of the city. Let's work for the good of others. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that you would take this message, this word that you've given us and that you would bury it deep in our hearts. God, everything that we see, everything that we hear from our phones to our TVs, every, th- every place we turn tells us to be for ourselves, to put ourselves first, to push ourselves out there. But you've called us to something different. You've called us to be for others, to work not for our own good, but for the good of the community you've placed us in. And so God, I pray for those watching and listening today, for those who call the orchard home and those who don't, that you would, God, use us to be for the good of the city and for the good of our communities. And as we work for others and not for ourselves, that people would notice that there's something different about us. There's something distinct about us. And that because of that, we could point them to our future home and the better hope that we have in Jesus. God, I pray that you'd use us to make a difference where we live for the good of the city, for the good of our neighbors, for your good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.